it's great to be uh, with you. Uh, as Preston said, my name is Ben. Um, as you can probably tell from the uh, dog collar, uh, funny shirt, and apologetically ripped jeans this morning, um, I am a Church of England minister, an Anglican minister from the UK. Um, and as Preston said, we're just here uh, with you guys for a few weeks, exploring, understanding a little bit about Vancouver, a little bit about what God's doing here in North America, um, and even what God's doing uh, amongst you. And it's been such a privilege to get to know a few of you over the last few weeks and to see what God's doing, which is absolutely loads through you. So um, thank you for allowing us um, to be a little bit part uh, of your story. Um, this is my lovely family who are also here. Uh, this is uh, Laura and William and not Sophie, uh, but <laughs> Chloe, and uh, they're probably, my kids, probably terrorizing your children's groups at the moment. I don't think Kate will ever be the same after this morning, um, but we're very grateful uh, that they can come and be part of uh, the kids' ministry here. Um, I uh, minister in three villages, uh, about 60 kilometers to the southwest of London, or in Canadian distances, right in the middle of London. Uh, and uh, it's a little bit different, if I'm honest, where I minister to here in downtown Vancouver. I minister in three churches. Um, the first one is called St. John's. This is the youngest church that we have. Uh, it's about 150 years old. Um, it's the biggest church that we have. About 400 people uh, meet together to worship here every week. Um, and then we have two other little churches as well. Uh, St. Mary's. This is St. Mary's. It's just under 1,000 years old. Uh, a little bit older than uh, Canada. And uh, also we have a third church. This is All Saints, which is in another little hamlet. Um, this is about kind of three or four hundred years old. And if you can picture some sort of English period drama like Downton Abbey or something written by Jane Austen, that's basically exactly what these churches are like. And that's the kind of ministry that I have uh, to them. Um, that's a joke. Thank you for, thank you for laughing. That's, that's good. Um, but yeah, uh, so a little bit different here. But I thought um, this week, I thought, how can I bring greetings um, from the UK to you here? And um, I was thinking, well, I'm not a great orator. I'm no great thespian, but I am a millennial. So I thought I would bring you a little video, which was taken just a couple of hours ago at one of the morning services um, at St. John's, which hopefully will work. They're very excited. Uh, so I thought, um, as a millennial, I thought I would um, see if we could return some greetings to the UK. Are you up for that? Yeah. Moderately up for that, okay. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for being moderately up for that. Okay, so I'm going to have my phone. I'm going to send some greetings, and they can use it at their next service. Is that all right? Let's see if it can work. I do know how to use my phone. Uh, so greetings to you in England from St. Peter's Fireside here in downtown Vancouver. Very good. It's like you guys have done this before. Thank you. Brilliant. So it's lovely to be with you, and also it's my great privilege to be able to uh, enter into a new sermon series with you. Over the next few weeks, uh, you are going to be looking at the book of Titus, which is in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, and if you've got it uh, in front of you in some form, whether you've got a device or whether you've even got one of those old papery things uh, called a Bible, then that will really help you. Um, I'm not going to put all of the verses up on the screen today, but we're going to be in Titus 1 and just the very first four verses of Titus 1. So please do have that open if you can. 
Uh, so last week, uh, Preston gave us a brilliant introduction to the Apostle Paul, and I'm not going to uh, go over all the things that Preston said this week, but uh, if you haven't listened to Preston's talk, I think you can grab it on the St. Peter's website, so do check it out and listen to that, because that will really help you out. Paul, as Preston told us, was one of, if not the greatest, of the church planters of all time ever. Uh, In the years after his dramatic conversion to faith on the road to Damascus, Paul planted alongside his traveling companions all sorts of churches across southern, eastern Europe and even into parts of Asia as well. And one of those churches was planted into Crete in southern Greece. Now, it probably wasn't necessary, um, but I thought I'd just put a map up, and I thought I'd get England on there, uh, just to remind us of our Anglican heritage and roots. Um, But if you can see, you probably can't behind the table, but Crete is right down at the very bottom, in the southernmost tip of Greece, right at the very um, bottom of the map. It's a place that's hot, it's dry, it's arid, it's probably a little bit like Vancouver of the last few weeks. Uh, And in Paul's time, Crete was also an island which was inhabited largely by the descendants of the Philistine people. If you remember the Philistines, Goliath, big scary giant, stone head, dead, that kind of thing. Um, The Philistines were a wild sort of people. Uh, And it seems like even in Paul's time, they've retained a lot of the same characteristics. Um, Paul himself says a little bit later on in Titus chapter 1, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) It's a pretty harsh word leveled at any culture. But there amongst them is this guy called Titus. Titus, a spiritual son or a mentee of Paul. He's a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider in some ways in a largely Jewish church culture of the time. Now, we don't know too much about Titus, um, other than actually in history, he is revered as being the father of the church in Crete, but also of having a very special skill. Uh, He somehow is revered as driving out all of the snakes from Crete. Uh, Now, I've got absolutely no idea what they teach you at Regent nowadays in your theological cemetery training, uh, but in the UK, we don't get taught how to drive out snakes. Um, But by all accounts, Titus is a man of great character, a man of skill, a man of calling, a man of tact and diplomacy. Uh, He is a man with a specific mission to put into place a long-term local leadership for the church plant in Crete. And so Titus, in effect, is a book that's written both to Titus himself from Paul, but also written to the wider church in Crete. And basically, it's a book about what it looks like to live a distinctive Christian life within a secular, morally challenging culture. So I'm pretty certain it will have something to say to you, and it will have something to say to me within the world that we live in together. So earlier this week, I uh, had coffee with Alistair, who is a great guy, by the way, isn't he? He's cool. And uh, he said one thing to me. He said, Ben, when you preach, please, please, no heresy. I thought, okay, I will try my absolute best. No heresy in the talk. Uh, if, I, if I veer off into heresy, uh, please feel free to stand up and start waving your arms wildly or something like that. 
But actually, in the middle of the passage that we are going to look at this morning, there are two big, dangerous heresies that we're going to have to uh, navigate a little bit between, like two, uh, like a ferry boat, a little bit like between two islands. There are two dangers that within the Christian life we can fall into, I can fall into regularly. The first is the danger of trying to earn our salvation. And the second is the danger of ticket to heaven laziness. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to name those two from Titus chapter 1 and then hopefully guide ourselves through them to a place which Paul describes as the order, as the foundations, as the structure to give us what we need so that we can go on over the weeks to come to look at Titus chapter 1 and deal with the really tough and challenging words that Paul brings to Titus, the church in Crete, and obviously to us as well here. Okay, so if you were to find yourself in medieval Europe uh, around 600 years ago and you stumbled into a church, like one of the ones I'm involved in, or maybe like this one, this is Winchester Cathedral, uh, just near where we live in the UK, um, and you went into a sermon, you were probably dressed a little bit different to how you are today, I would imagine, and I would probably be a little bit smarter than I am today, and you heard the preacher speaking about what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean to gain salvation? What does it mean to go to heaven one day for all eternity? You would have probably heard the preacher speaking a little bit about salvation in terms of what you believe, what you, the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. But you would have also heard him speak about all sorts of other things like how you live, about how good you have been, perhaps even about how many people have prayed for your soul in the last week. But if you'd heard preaching on Titus chapter 1, as we are doing this morning, you would have probably heard verses 1 to 2 explained a little bit like this. The truth of God leads to godliness. Godliness gives us a hope of eternal life if we meet the grade. Um, I wrote the word heresy on my slide because I was slightly concerned that if I put that on a screen and I stood in front of it and somebody got on social media, I could get a phone call from Alistair or my bishop in the UK within about three seconds. So basically, if you know who God is, then you better live a good enough life as described in the Bible. And if you do that, and some slightly crazy other things too, then at the day of judgment, God might... Look favorably upon your soul and grant you eternal life. It's a message that we probably hear all around us, if we're honest, within other worlds' religion or within the culture that we live, right? Well, fortunately for us, about 500 years ago, a German monk called Martin Luther turned up in Germany. And basing his theology on Galatians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3, he said, well, hold on a minute. That isn't really the story that the Bible gives us about salvation at all. He said, the Bible says that your salvation is based really only on one thing, sola fide in Latin, on faith alone. Basically, you cannot earn your salvation. I cannot earn my salvation. You, me, everybody else is fallen, broken, sinful. Basically, against God's perfect standards, we don't make the grade. No amount of 
good behavior or godliness or piety, no amount of money changing hands, which strangely was one of the practices in the church, will get you into heaven. The only way of receiving your salvation is to say sorry for seeking to live an independent, uh, inward-focused life, as Luther said, and to turn outward, outward to God, and to accept the free gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. So basically, you can't do it, I can't do it, but it's great news is that Jesus has done it for us on the cross. You see the radical difference in those two perspectives. Now, I offer that because before we plow into Titus over the next few weeks, if we hold on to that medieval view that we are going to have to earn our salvation, then I can guarantee you that if by the few weeks' time, you and I will feel absolutely terrible. Because we will read the words of Titus and we will realize that we simply do not make the grade, the challenge that is given to us in the book of Titus. We will look at the challenges Paul offers and realize, or at least I will realize, that basically I am not up to scratch at all. And then we might think, oh my goodness, well maybe God doesn't love me at all. Maybe I'm not uh, going to heaven. Maybe eternal life isn't really mine. Maybe I can't really be in a relationship with God after all. And that would be a disaster. That would be absolutely terrible. And in effect, we would just be agreeing with the stereotypes that at least we have in our UK culture that says being a Christian is just about being a good person. That isn't, of course, the Christian story at all, is it? Heresy number one avoided. You and I cannot earn our salvation. It's a free gift. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've been, Jesus' offer to you and to me is salvation. It's forgiveness. It's freedom. It's a new beginning. As Paul says elsewhere, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So this is the knowledge of truth that Paul uh, speaks about in Titus 1, chapter 2. The knowledge is, and I'm laboring the point just to make sure that we've got it, is that we are saved by faith. I don't know if you noticed in Titus chapter 1, the few first few verses, the word salvation appears multiple times alongside the word faith. So before we move on, I wonder, I wonder if any of us who are here today, maybe we will call ourselves a Christian, maybe we will call ourselves a follower of Jesus, but deep down we know that really our story is based on trying to prove to God that we are good enough, that we do enough good stuff. Maybe you think, well, you know, God obviously loves all those people because they're great. But actually, my story, the stuff that goes on in my heart, those words that I use, those actions that I do, the things that I think about and do when I'm in secret and no one's watching, that stuff, surely that stuff disqualifies me from God's grace. And I just wanted to say before I move on that if that is your story in any way, please would you know, please would you know that God loves you, that God thinks wonderfully of you, that God's offer of grace and forgiveness and love and relationship is 
for you, and it doesn't matter that you can't earn it. In fact, it's great news that you can't earn it uh, because Jesus has done it for you. Okay, are you still with me? About half the people are still with me. Okay, that's not bad going, actually. (laughs) Okay, so that's heresy number one. Heresy number two says this, I can do anything I want because God loves me and I'm going to heaven. Okay, confession time. When I was about 10 or 11, I got kicked out of Sunday school, or junior church, or whatever you call it uh, here in Vancouver. Uh, Basically, uh, I thought church was dull. I thought it was boring. I absolutely loved playing football. Uh, I think you call it soccer, but it's called football. Uh, And uh, I just thought I'd much rather be playing football. And I thought, you know what? Actually, if salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, then all I need to do is live the most crazy, me-centered, exciting, fun-filled, sinful life. Because sin is fun, right? You're not looking convinced. Like, sin is really fun. And if if you don't think sin is fun, I think you might be doing the wrong sin. So I'm happy to talk to you you afterwards. But I thought, well, if you live this most crazy, sinful life, all I have to do is, before I die one day, I just need to say to God, God, I'm so sorry for all of the sinful life that I've done. Please, could I have my ticket to heaven now? And like the thief on the cross, I could get myself into heaven. And I thought, well, that's not bad, ingenious thinking for a 10-year-old, actually, I think, on the whole, is it? But it's obviously not great theology, and it's obviously not, just in case you're wondering, the main point of the sermon this morning either. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Because we live a new life. For me, it wasn't until I got to my my teenage years, in fact, it meant moving pretty much to the opposite side of the world, when I started to realize that the Christian story is not just about a ticket to heaven. It's actually an eternal story, a story of being in relationship with the creator of the universe. And it doesn't start one day when you get to heaven. Actually, it starts when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is an adventure. It's a story of being in relationship which affects every single part of the human life. It is God's offer to lead us, to guide us through those high moments, those mountaintop wonderful experiences, and also through the valley of the shadow of death and those times when the broken world around us seems hard and difficult and challenging. That's something of the Christian story for now. I don't know what it's like here, um, but in in the UK, people are always climbing ladders. Uh, I don't want to give you the wrong picture about what it's like in England. People aren't literally just standing around on ladders. But um, people are always metaphorically climbing ladders, Uh, career ladders, housing ladders, academic ladders, financial ladders. People are desperately, desperately searching for identity and meaning and purpose and safety in success and fame, and fortune, and material stuff. Except at least in the UK, people are discovering that it just doesn't work. We have mental health um, issues going out of all proportion. They are rising year upon year upon year. And I don't want to make light of what is very serious and very personal and probably will affect some of us even here today. 
But so much of the, the mental health of our country in the UK is tied up in the fact that the world tells us we need to put our trust and our faith in something which basically just does not work at the end of the day. It is something that is not secure. Um, I was doing a bit of reading this week about you lovely people here in Canada, and I, I read two studies that came out. Um, the first I, I noticed was that Vancouver is the third best city to live in the world, apparently. Um, I can vouch that it is a lovely place to be. But I noticed there was a study alongside it which says that apparently uh, residents here in Vancouver are, are the most unhappy of any city in North America. Um, I thought, wow, isn't that kind of strange that you put those two things together? But somehow where you live, the beauty and the opportunities and the fame and all the stuff around you doesn't seem to automatically live to happiness. But the Christian invitation is into a new life, a new story, one based on love, following, serving, being part of God's plans and purposes, which genuinely should shape every aspect of how we live our lives. Our lives are no longer our own, Paul says. Paul describes himself as a servant, a servant to a greater story, a bigger plan. And that's for our benefit, but of course it's also for the wider benefit of the world around as well. Um, I don't know if you have this here in, um, in Vancouver, but um, in the UK, as our Anglicans, um, priests, we often get asked if we will christen children. Do you have christenings here? Mm, a few, okay. So it's very, very normal in the UK for Christian parents and non-Christian parents to want to get their children um, baptised effectively. And um, so one of the things that I do is that I go and see people or we run courses and we, we say to people, like, you know, well, why, why do you want to get your children um, christened? And a few weeks ago, I went to somebody's house near where we live and uh, the husband and the wife were there and the wife was, had been bringing her little uh, son along to church for a few weeks. And uh, so I said to her, you know, why is it that you want to get your, your child baptized? Um, and she said to me, well, do you know what? I don't, I'm not really a Christian, but I've been coming along to church and you know, people are so welcoming, they're so warm. I, she, I'd really love my child to know something about God. I'd really like him to grow up in the community of the church so that actually one day he can make a choice for himself. I thought, wow, praise God, this is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I said, said to the, the husband, well, what is it about kind of baptism that, that kind of excites you? And he said, well, to be honest, I'm really struggling with it. He said, I'm a police officer in a nearby city to where we live. He said, and I, I come across Christians all the time in my job. He said, the problem is though, that the Christians that I come across all the time, they talk about hellfire and damnation and they sit within their churches on Sundays and they tell people that they have to come along to church. But he said, I'm a police officer and I have to deal with their rubbish for the rest of the week. But gosh, that's pretty harsh. I don't know what Christians do in this particular city. But he said, I cannot believe in this kind of idea of a Jesus if this is what Christians look like. Mahatma Gandhi, very famous, wonderful, wise man, said pretty much the same thing. He said, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. Pretty surprising, right? It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. That is pretty strong words. 
So actually on so many different levels, it obviously does matter as Christians how we live. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Well, that's taken us a long time. I'm sorry, that was all words of just guiding us through to this bit of Titus chapter 1, which I think gives us, just in these last little bit, gives us the order which we need. It gives us the mandate which we need for our lives in Christ. This is the order that I think Titus chapter 1 gives us. Okay. The knowledge of truth that Paul speaks of, Titus 1-2, the word epignosis, is that salvation is a gift. It is God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. You can't earn it. I can't earn it. But it is a truth which comes from, Paul says, a rational decision of understanding. Paul speaks about it in relation to preaching. Elsewhere, Paul says, Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That little Greek preposition, epi, like resting upon, like our salvation is resting upon that truth of salvation by faith. That story, that, that knowledge of Christ, that salvation, which is a free gift, leads toward a whole new story, a new life. A new identity, one with purpose, one with meaning. Paul says, I am a servant, a servant or a slave of God. I don't know about you, but I don't really uh, aspire to being a slave or a servant. But for Paul, this is almost like a badge of honor. It's exactly the same word that is used for Moses and it is used for Joshua. It is a place of service. It's a, in some ways, it is a lowly place, but it's also a place of security, of safety, of playing a part within an eternal story. The role of a servant is to do his master's bidding. It is to serve the bigger story. Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he? He says all stuff, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the rubbish, all of it, I consider nothing rubbish compared to the all-surpassing amazingness of knowing Christ Jesus. It's present, continuous, knowing Christ. That's the story that we are invited into. Paul says it's part of an eternal story, set in motion before the start of the world, but which you and I are invited into. And then here's the big one, the last one, and then I promise I'm done. That new story, that relationship of love that we are invited into has to lead toward godliness. It has to lead towards a different way of living and choosing and making decisions of our life. Um, an absolutely astonishing thing happened 11 years ago in the world. I, it didn't quite make the world news, uh, but it was at least entirely surprising to me. And that was that I managed to convince this beautiful lady here to marry me. I know, it's a shock. It was a huge shock to me that she said yes. I'm sure if you've met either of us, you thought, how on earth did that oaf of a man ever manage to persuade this beautiful young lady to marry him? Um, I managed to get her into a church. 
Uh, I even managed to get her before a vicar and before God and before witnesses and our friends and families to agree to love me and walk the journey of marriage with me. Um, I've got a little picture here. Do you notice this is after we got married? I'm still holding her hand just to make sure that even after we got married, she didn't run away. (laughs) So for the last decade, though, Laura and I have lived this story. We've lived this covenant relationship of love through high moments, through wonderful traveling and holidays and romance and things like that, and of course through just those occasional other moments that you have in relationships as well, through having to get up when small children run and jump all over you, having to get them to school, through sickness, through being stressed out of our minds, through trying to balance our finances, through all those different moments, we've lived that story. But one of the most amazing things that I've discovered in the last 10 years is that I get to get up every morning and know that Laura loves me. It doesn't matter too much what I did the day before. It doesn't matter how grumpy I'm feeling or even how grumpy she's feeling, which of course she never feels grumpy. Um, It doesn't matter because I know that we have made a covenant which means that I have promised through sickness and in health to love her, and she has made that promise to love me too. But at the same time, how I act matters. It's not that I have to earn her love every day. If I did have to earn her love every day, she would get a lot more breakfast in bed. She would get a lot more flowers. She'd get taken out for dinner a lot more. I'm just being honest about that. But because I know that she loves me, it is still my duty to overflow my love for her in how I live my life. If when we got married 12 years ago, I'd said, you know what, darling, I love you. You're fantastic. You're wonderful. Um, Let's have dinner tonight. And then I'm just going to go off and spend the week with the boys. And I'm just going to go and hang out with some other people. Um, But don't worry, we'll have lunch again on Sunday. And then if I've got a problem, I'll give you a call. I don't think I'd have persuaded her or anybody else that we were actually in love and that I actually loved her. But the, the, the challenge to me is to live out my life of faith and love and commitment to her, not only through those high moments, but through every single moment of every day, which I have to remind myself. It is how I use my time. It's how I use my money. It's the choices that I make. It's where we choose to live our lives together. That's what it looks like to love in the long journey of a marriage or any other relationship. And exactly the same is true of our relationships with God. I don't know if it's just maybe in the people around me or even in my own life where I see this, but so often we can live our Christian lives if it's just like, well, it's what I do on when I need God. I'm going to call him up and say, God, why haven't you fixed my problems yet? Or I'm going to come along to church on a Sunday when I feel like I want to come along to church or whatever it might be. But the invitation is to overflow that loving relationship through how we live our lives. That's why godliness is our call. That's why godliness matters, because it is an overflow of that love, that life that Jesus has given to us. So, brothers and sisters, as we journey into Titus over the weeks to come, may I invite you, may I invite you to reflect on those words of Paul again. May I invite you to remember that you are saved by faith alone. You are saved not because you can do it, but because Jesus has done it for you. May I invite you to remember that you are called into a bigger story, a better story, an eternal story, 
A story of loving God and being loved by God. A story that could take you anywhere, anytime, to anything, but it will be amazing, I promise. And may I invite you to remember your responsibility to allow your lives to reflect God's glory out into the world because that's what love looks like. Shall we pray?